When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back. Another episode of Simply Amazing. Episode number 145, which is blowing my mind. We just cruising right along. Having a good time, we hope. But Tim Ryder from the Apple. Uh, we are still stuck in lockout mode. And on Thursday, which I recorded some of this episode on Wednesday and some of this episode on Thursday. So uh, if you pick up, I guess, time gaps or mentioning a yesterday here or there, don't mind it. But uh Major League Baseball and the Players Association met on Thursday for the first time pretty much since the lockout began. And uh, naturally, there is no deal. Nobody should have been expecting that uh, so early in the process. MLB did make a proposal uh, by all accounts and from the whispers that we're hearing for as far as what it contained. Uh, the Players Association is not happy at all. They feel like they're... Uh, the foundation of what they were they've worked so hard for in previous labor battles is kind of now being cut out from underneath them um the progress that they wanted to make or you know they still want to make the progress that they feel is imperative for the the future of the game to uh properly compensate players to to get the most value possible for a an extremely important group of Major League Baseball players who are <laughs> very valuable to the game as far as contributions to their team, contributions to the league. I mean, I, I don't have numbers, but, you know, pre-arbitration and arbitration players are making more of an impact now than they ever have. Um, and that's, you know, by design, I guess, teams realize that, hey, it, it, we have, if we streamline things the right way, we can have players ready to go at 20, 21 years old, and they'll be, you know, pre-arb or arbitration through their late, you know, late 20s at the at the very earliest, like what, 27, 28 matters when they come up, but in some cases a little bit younger, but in most cases it's a little bit older. MLB wants to lower free agency from, well, their arbitration period from five, from six years down to five years, and per reports today, MLB has no interest in doing that. And of course, you know, owners don't want to have to pay players who are that much more that much deeper into their primes. You know, a player's 29 years old, he's in the thick of it. Um, players 30 years old, you have to start wondering about when age is going to catch up to him. I know that, you know, these guys have a few more years in them at, at the very least, especially with the way the players are keeping themselves in shape now. But, um, you know, a 30... A, a, a 29-year-old player and a 30-year-old player coming from an investment point of view, at least from a team's or organization's point of view, it's going to make a big difference. It's not going to make a lot of difference, but, you know, those those two numbers are, um, you know, they, they mean uh, they mean different things, when, especially when it comes to free agency. But, you know, the, I think the Players Association has their eyes on the prize with regards to getting the most they can for these guys. And, of course, that's not the only 
issue on the table. There's a lot more here. But, um, you know, I guess from the start, I'm just going to go ahead and scroll through some of these, uh, I guess, uh, reports. I know Evan Drellick from The Athletic uh, had a lot to say. John Heyman uh, noted that MLB wants to raise minimum salary and more money for Super 2 players. But, uh, again, it was just a, a disappointing, and that's in quotes from, from Heyman, um, offer. And that's, you know, from the player's perspective. And he, there was another one that, that absolutely blew my mind. This is Ben Nicholson-Smith. He's up in Toronto. So he's reporting MLB owners – I'm reading his tweet right off the right off of Twitter. <laughs> MLB owners offered a potential solution to service time manipulation in their proposal. If a highly ranked prospect within the top 150 on prospect lists uh, plays a full year and finishes top five for a major league award like an MVP or a Cy Young or a Rookie of the Year, his team, the organization he plays for, would get a bonus draft pick. So, as we were just saying a few minutes ago, players are making an impact at a younger age, and that's just where the great game is trending these days. So, if a guy like, let's say, Wander Franco, um, I know he got some uh, some reps last season, but I believe he'll still be on prospect lists entering the year. Um, if he finishes in the top five for an MVP or a rookie. Well, I guess he was already eligible for the rookie of the year. So if he finishes top five in the, for the MVP this year, the Tampa Bay Rays get a draft pick. Does, I, I know Juan DeFranco just signed a huge extension, but let's just not, let's just pretend it's not Juan DeFranco. Let's pretend it's any rookie or who, or any young player who's still on a prospect list who might've gotten called up late in the season last year. This year, they have a magical season. They're in the top five of, of Rookie of the Year, MVP. They don't get rewarded for that. Their team does. So the way I saw it was your underpaid player, underpaid young player, has a magic year in the show. The organization he plays for gets rewarded with a draft pick. They get to start that process all over again. So they get to develop this player again, with a with a draft pick, uh, with a comp pick, which are usually fairly high in the process, whether it's between one and two or two and three or however they make a, a deal with this, a team can actually tailor make this so that, hey, you know, this is going to be a, a – it, it's going to be just a <laughs> it, – they're going to be manufacturing the same situation over and over again. So – and in the end, the player continues to be underpaid until they're, if MLB has their way, until they're 30 years old. Um, of course, if they make a, you know, if they make their debut at younger at, at a younger age, they'll be hitting free agency younger. But in the end, I mean, it all comes out in the wash where, you know, but let's say Bobby Wood Jr. That's a good example. Bobby Wood Jr., if he comes up uh, for the Royals, probably my favorite prospect in baseball. If he comes up and starts the year for the Royals, which he's expected to do this year, and he has a Rookie of the Year campaign, an MVP campaign. The Royals are going to get rewarded for it. Bobby Witt Jr., he, he had maybe minimum salary or, or league minimum salary is going to go up $30,000 for a young player. But, you know, that's just across the board. He's not going to get any extra. Yeah, down the road he will. What if something terrible happens? We've seen careers be tragically stopped short so many times, whether it's injuries, whether whatever. Something something can happen, and, and you know, 
the value and the and the, the actual profits that this team makes off of a young star, and it could be any star. I mean, Mike Trapp, before he signed his extension, the Angels were milking that. And I know he got his money in the, in the long run, but um, when you have young players who are contributing so much to the game, they need to have their fair share of the fair share of the pie. Um, as far as timing goes with all of this stuff, uh, I guess here, what was the, <laughs> I have one here. Where are we? Where are we? Here we go. Evan Drellick. So this was his lead uh, in his tweet. And uh, again, if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, you should be following up with Evan, all of Evan's stuff. He's been pretty much spot on when it comes to um, this entire process. But his lead, and it, you know, his lead is the issue isn't so much whether spring training will be delayed. The better question is, why should one believe it will start on time? And that's just <laughs> extremely unencouraging. It, it takes the wind out of everybody's sails. Um, it, I, I saw someone mention today that March 1st would be like a, almost like a D-date for, uh, a, you know, a, a deadline day, however you want to put it for canceling regular season games, which we've spoken about this at length in previous episodes. Nobody wants that. Fans don't want that. Players don't want that. Owners don't want that. It's not good for the game. We've seen the damage that these types of things can do, not just in baseball, across professional sports. But we've also seen how, I guess, how could I put it? (laughs) We've also seen how guys can... I'm trying to find a way to kind of put my words together here. It, it, it galvanizes the players. If you start pushing them around, I guess that's what I was getting at here. I, I Susan Slusser from, um, she's out at the Chronicle in San Francisco giants player at Boston Slater. And this is a quote. There's a lot of frustration from the players. And I think there's a willingness to ride this out as long as it takes to get a fair agreement. End quote. Before I start a new one, that's fucking scary. Begin a new quote. It's hard to say right now, but with the league making proposals that eliminate fundamental player rights, it's making this process more difficult. I think it's hardening the stance of the players. The way I take that is that this could really, really stretch out a long time, which I'm not, you know, of course it's disappointing, but if the end product is a better situation for the players who it doesn't matter how much they make a year. They can make $30 million a year. That's what their job pays. If you could do it, you would do it too. But if this if this ends with players just holding their ground, standing their ground until actual changes are made, I stand with them. I think you should too, but I'm not going to I mean, I'm not going to force <laughs> force my opinion on you. I'm just going to share my opinion with you. I stand with these players. I don't care. I, I, you know, when I got to watch my words here, I do care if they cancel the whole season. That would kill us. It would kill, it would kill all of us. If it has to happen for changes to get made, I, I think as a, as a league wide fan base, maybe we'll have to, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to swallow that pill too. And, uh, you know, of course, the narrative. And in 1994, it was different because all you had was newspapers who were kind of pushing the narrative. And that's why players were so vilified. All they wanted was not to have a 
<laughs> not to have their salaries capped. But um, yeah, there's, of course, more to it, but that's for another day. But if it's going to take, you know, an entire half a season, a full season, and for things to get right, then as fans, I, I you know, I'm going to be standing with the players the whole time. I'm not going to be saying, oh, just make it happen. Just make it work. No, because then, you know, whether you're, whether you're choosing to or not, whether you realize it or not, you're siding with the owners. Just get it done. Just get it done. No, that's not what unions are about. Just get it done. You're doing a disservice to not only you and the future players who have to deal with this four years or three years down the line when a new CBA comes up, but all the players that came before you that worked so hard to get you to this point. And yeah, the last CBA, the last two CBAs were really, really shitty for the players. But if it takes them standing their ground and holding out until progress is actually made, I stand with them. If we miss a whole season, fuck it. Let's do it. Oof. I, I hope that uh, I don't catch any backlash for that. But uh, honestly, it's how I feel. I stand with the players. This Baseball wouldn't be baseball without baseball players. doesn't matter who the, who the owners are. It doesn't matter how much they get paid. We love baseball. They can't bring in replacement players. They can. They shouldn't. <laughs> if they learn their lesson from the 95 debacle, they, they should definitely not bring in uh, replacement players. And I think I believe that there's uh, – Things that will be holding that up. I, I don't know enough about labor relations, but I believe there is something built into the last one that will prevent replacement players from being called in. And anyway, um, you know, usually we get through off seasons with hot stove, and just it it hasn't been the case this year because it's been a lockout and it's been like just extra draining. It's been extra stressful. And yeah, you know the <laughs> the Mets have been. Um, Given us something, but you know, when things are actually going to start picking up again, uh, you know, we just don't know. I think at least with the Mets, we've had our, our dribs and drabs with the coaching staff. By the way, the Mets do have their, their bench coach selected per Andy Martino of SNY. Uh, they will not announce who that hire is until I believe they fill out the rest of their staff, which at this point is an assistant hitting coach and an assistant pitching coach, I believe. Because, yeah, right now you have uh, you have Buck in the in the driver's seat, Jeremy Hefner as the incumbent in the uh, pitching coach role. Uh, your hitting coach is Eric Chavez, who the Mets swooped in and sniped from the Yankees, which pretty awesome. Uh, you know, sign of times changing. We talked about it on the Apple. Read the article if you haven't. Uh, you got Wayne Kirby coaching first base and Joey Cora at third base. So yeah, just filling out the rest of the staff there. Um, you know, moving right along. And I guess we got a little bit of news on the on the Mets front this week, but not a whole lot. Uh Brandon uh Brandon Nimmo, who of course hits free agency after this season, has hired a new agent. Um he left CAA, which of course you remember CAA is the place where Brody Van Wagenen came from. So, uh yeah, that's what they got. Well, they're they're a large agency, big firm to begin with. But at least for a Mets fan, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is that's where Brody came from. But uh, Brandon Nimmo left CAA. He's now with Boris Corp, Scott Boris's firm, which 
it might strike fear into the hearts of some Mets fans, but you know, um, if anything, what Boris is going to do. All right, look, we we all know the value of Brandon Nimmo. We're well familiar with what he brings to the table when he's healthy, which has been an issue for him in the past. Uh, He's played 100 games in his career in a season one time. Uh, In 2020, he did play 55 out of 60 games. But, um, yeah, it's been a a chore for him to stay on the field and, and healthy. It seems like it's always something. And, you know, he ran into a wall, hurt his neck a few years ago, and that was, um, you know, I guess that's going to happen. You got to be a little bit more careful about giving up your body like that. But you know, he he plays hard, so I guess it is what it is. We've seen him make uh, make dives in the outfield, you know, with just kind of disregard for his uh, his physical health. And you know, he's playing baseball. He's a baseball player. It's it's what they do. But um, yeah, I mean, Brandon Nimmo at the plate. We all know what he is. He's a he's a on base percentage king. He gets on. Yeah, he gets on in just a, uh, a terrific clip. I mean, if you go back, I believe it was to 2018. I have the numbers here. Hold on one second. All right, so since 2018, Nimmo's hit 267, 398, 457. His 139 weighted runs created plus is 13th in the majors. That 398 on base is tied for fourth in the majors. So, again, he's not a, he's, he's not a superstar, but his contributions have been a uh, – more than more than evident, um, you know he, he's especially at the top of the order. Uh, I made a note on the Apple this week. First batter of the game last season, he hit three thirteen, four twenty one, five hundred, leading off any inning three fifty six, four fifty seven, five sixty eight. That's just a it's an impressive little facet. Uh, you know, men on base, runners in scoring position, the same thing. Um, Eight oh one. OPS with men on base last year. His slugging was only 339 with runners in scoring position. I'd love to see that get bumped up, but he hit 268 with a 423 on base with uh, ducks on the pond. So you can't uh, you can't really complain about that. 13 walks, 14 strikeouts, and 71 of those uh, plate appearances. That's that's again, it's gonna hold water wherever you stick him. Um, he's gonna. Do what he does. He's going to get on base. He's going to be selective at the plate. You know, Brandon Nimmo, he'll spit at pitches that, you know, some batters might gamble on. Oh, it might not be my pitch, but it's a pitch I can drive, so let's go for it. And I'm sure Nimmo's approach will change as the count goes on or what have you. But, you know, if Nimmo picks out his pitch, he doesn't doesn't bargain with a borderline pitch. He waits for his pitch, and I think that's kind of the allure that he brings at the plate. It's a it's a next level eye that is able to decipher what's in his kitchen or not, and it you know it's um it's an asset. It's an asset to any roster in Major League Baseball. You know, for the Mets who've gone great lengths to improve their roster this offseason, Nimmo's presence kind of makes that even more uh, more powerful. I mean, it feels like in the past the Mets may have been depending on Nimmo to be more than he is. Um, you know, he's a table setter. He keeps the train moving. He gets on base. We, we've said it <laughs> three times already today. He gets on base. This is what he does. It's like that scene in, uh, in Moneyball. What does he do? He gets on base. So Brandon Nimmo does. So 
you know, if you surround him with, you know, highly competent teammates who can also keep that train moving, keep that wheel rolling, you know, I'm going to take it back to Luis Rojas. They're, they're going to be connecting at bats very, very well. And having Nimmo in that one spot, having Starling Marte around him, in in whether it's if they have the DH, man, if they could start playing with that nine spot in the batting order, my goodness, it's a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities. I love that. I love having speed at both ends. It's great having speed and on base at both ends. Forget about it. You put Jeff McNeil in the nine spot, Brandon Nimmo in the one, Marte in the two. That's dangerous. Oh, yeah. I uh, see. I'm. We need baseball to start, man. This is. I know. This is usually the time of year where we don't have it anyway. And then the Dominican Winter Leagues have been fantastic. If you have a chance to check them out, they stream pretty much every night. Um, really, really fun stuff. But you know, we get through off seasons with hot stove. Right now, we got no hot stove, so we're just going on what we got. So when we get these little blurbs about Nimmo switching agencies. Yeah, we're going to speculate. We're going to take it from there. So let's say the Mets do, and as has been reported, the Mets do are interested in talking with Brandon Nimmo regarding a contract extension because, like we said, he's a free agent at the end of 2022. If the Mets do are indeed keen on bringing Nimmo back and Nimmo wants to stick around, you know, Nimmo's worth X amount of dollars. I had him pegged at like $12 million a year somewhere around there. And considering he has a real tough time staying healthy, I think that's a fair number. So it would be four years, 48 million or so. Let's bump it up to four years, 50 million. Let's make it 12.5 a year. Um, You know, Scott Boris is going to come in knowing full well that Britain knew it was worth X amount of dollars and be like, no, 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 no. These are the stats that we're talking about. He's pretty much going to lay out what I just laid out for you. How, how valuable he is. Uh, on offense, how competent he is on defense, which we talked about it here last year. Had a great year in center field. He's proven he can play the corners very well. Boris is going to harp on these things, and he's like, "Well, my twelve point five million dollar year, you know, the twelve point five million you're ready to give my guy, I'm ready to demand seventeen point five, and he's going to settle for fifteen. That's just how Scott Boris and any good negotiator works. He's going to get what he." what he thinks he can get and he's going to press all the right buttons to get there so in Nimmo's case you know taking everything into into consideration one that when he's healthy he's a difference maker also that he's not healthy all the time but you know he's going to give you what he's going to give you and you can pretty much expect it at this point you know what he's you know who he is what he is what he does um as far as the Mets keeping him in the fold, I think that's a, a no-brainer. I mean, again, unless Boris comes in and, and, and sets some, you know, ridiculous mark, a $20 million a year AAV for Brandon Nimmo, yeah, you got <laughs> you got to take a step back because yeah, that's just not, not feasible. Um, you know, if Nimmo comes out this year and plays 150 games and hits 310 with a 430 on-base percentage – yeah, maybe that changes the conversation. We could start at 15, not 12. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of factors. There's a lot of variables that are going to play into that. I think it all comes down to Nimmo performing and Nimmo staying on the field all season. Uh, you know, you have to assume, like we said earlier, he's going to be a very, very big part of what's going on here. You have Marte in center. You have Nimmo in a corner. You have Mark Canna in the other corner. You're going to have 
Khalil Lee, uh, our buddy Mike Mayer over at Metsurize was talking about him on Twitter on Wednesday. Um, he brought up that Khalil Lee was tied for sixth in the majors, uh, sixth in the minor leagues, with his 162 weighted runs created plus with Syracuse last year. He was tied with MJ Melendez, who led the minors in homers. He's a catcher for the Royals. And if you whittle down that search, well, that that leaderboard search to only minor leaguers. 25 or younger, Khalil Lee, MJ Melendez, and Arnado. Oh, I can't think of his last name. Uh, Prospect from the Rays, who they have dozens of them. Uh, Prospect from the Rays. Those three were tied for the highest weighted runs created plus in the minor leagues among all minor leaguers ages 25 or younger. So that's, what, 80% of them? Um yeah, you know, that's that's huge. That's that's a big deal. So you're going to have Khalil Lee. You have Nick Plummer, who really found his way with the Cardinals over the last season and a half. Now he's in the Mets system. He's on the 40 man. You know, these these are two guys who are young, but extremely capable of stepping into that fourth outfielder spot because, you know, the Mets are going to need a fourth outfielder. I don't think you can rely on Canna, Nimmo and Marte for 150 apiece. Um You know, Jeff McNeil, if he's still around, is going to be roaming. He could certainly stick into a corner, uh, Lee and Plummer. But the Mets are going to have to probably go out there and find a fourth outfielder, at least a a proven veteran-type commodity. I hate referring to players as commodities, but a a proven veteran option to stick out there and and have on the bench, you know, if if the need arises, especially with DH, you know, you can really go so many ways with this. Mike Puma from the New York Post this week mentioned Kyle Schwarber as a as a possible target of the Mets, and you know that makes perfect sense. The, the guy's killed the Mets enough. He's all he does is hit freaking home runs against the Mets. Might as well have him on your side. You know, whether you can get reps in the corner outfield spots from him. Uh, I know he's got he got some play at first base last year with Boston. Once he got traded over, he certainly uh, adds a, an exciting dynamic to a roster. Uh, he's still young; I believe he's 29, 30 years old. You know, he's got championship pedigree. He was with the Cubs when they won. Uh, he rakes in the postseason, which is where, of course, the Mets hope to be. I think it would be a great addition. Um, I think it all hinges on the designated hitter, though, which, you know, I, the beginning of the lockout, it seemed like uh, on-field changes were kind of being backburnered. Um, as we've drawn on through the lockout, it seems like the DH is more and more of a, I don't want to say a sure thing, but, um, you know, some of the bigger outlets are now kind of hinting at, yeah, yeah, that's part of the deal. And I guess that's what we all expected. But again, with the different narratives that are being tossed out there, uh you really just don't know. But let's assume there is. I mean, you, the Mets are going to have such a deep roster. I mean, this is what they lost last year when they lost the DH. They had the depth ready to go. Lost the DH. Now you got to find spots for guys. And, you know, it's uh, it was a train wreck at times. <laughs> at times they had trouble even just fielding a healthy team. But, um, you know, having DH there with a healthy roster would have been um, a boon for this for, for, for the Mets. They, they would have been able to... Switch guys in and out, Dom Smith or J.D. Davis or, you know, whoever. Um, that being said, I mean, adding a Schwarber, adding a 
a big bat. Uh, you know, they, you have to assume they have fielders. They don't need a glove first, fourth outfielder. They have Lee. They have Plummer. Uh, they could stick McNeil out there, who's been very decent in the corners. Go ahead, get a fourth bat, man. I know we talked about Solaire on the show in the past. Um, oh gosh, now I can't think of his name. Eddie Rosario. I, mean, I knew he was with the Braves for the World Series run. Eddie Rosario, I think, is a terrific candidate just to come in here. I mean, he adds depth. He can play the outfield. You know what he brings offensively. You know, if as long as he's not the focal point, like I guess they tried to make him that in Minnesota, um, you saw that kind of pressure just melt away from him once you got to Atlanta. Same thing with Solaire. You know, once you're not the guy and you're just a, a cog in the machine, um, you, you, you see guys settle in. And I think both of those would be, both of those guys would just be uh, terrific options for this team. Um, yeah, the Mets are going to have their <laughs> their cards full once uh, once the lockout is lifted and the freeze is, uh, is thawed out. Um, you just got to hope it's sooner rather than later. We do have one more little piece of uh, actual, I guess, active Mets roster news. Uh, Edwin Diaz. Our buddy Raul Ramos over at Calm Las Bases Full, I hope I said that right, uh, filled this in on Monday, Monday or Tuesday. Edwin Diaz is down in Puerto Rico this offseason. He's working with former Major League reliever Hector Mercado uh, down in, in PR. Uh, with uh, Diaz is doing this with the intent of entering spring training, uh, quote-unquote game ready, which Love to see that. Love the initiative. I think that's a, a great move for Diaz. I mean, we saw, we know who who he is. We know the the level of stuff he has, and I think um, staying sharp has been the thorn in the side of Edwin Diaz. You see him go from you know absolutely lights out to can't find the plate in a matter of you know hours. <laughs> He'll come out on a Thursday and be lights out. Come out on a Friday and just get blown up. Um, last year, I think he was able to limit the the blown up side of that equation pretty well, but he was almost a, I don't want to say a different pitcher, but a more disciplined pitcher. It, we've talked here in the past about Edwin Diaz transforming from a thrower into a pitcher, and I think that that process is kind of starting to take place. You look at his season last year, 12.78 strikeouts per nine, uh, you know, <laughs> extremely respectable. His career average going into last season was 14.75. So that's a noticeable dip. But then you look around his other metrics, his average velocity went up. I believe he was at 97, high 97 mile per hour in 2020, jumped up to 98.9 in 2021. He limited home runs the lowest in his career, 0.43 per nine innings. I think he let up three home runs all season after giving up 15. In 2019, yeah, 2019, look, 15 home runs. Last year, he gave up just three, zero against the slider. And it was his lowest walks per nine, 3.30 since uh, 2018 with Seattle. There's no question that Edwin Diaz has phenomenal stuff that he can be the guy the Mets traded for. And I think we've seen flashes, more than flashes of that. We've seen prolonged stretches of that type of pitcher. He just got to limit the downtimes. And with, with stuff that moves like his does, Harnessing that movement and harnessing that that command, trying to command a pitch like that. You know, his his four-seamer, it moves laterally like a two-seamer does. 
And then his slider comes in in the same tunnel and just disappears. It's um, it, remarkable, remarkable pitcher, remarkable stuff. He's just got to lock it in. And I really think that Diaz took a step towards finding that even keel, that happy medium of being just this otherworldly pitcher and a smart otherworldly thrower or smart crafty pitcher. That's that's the middle ground you kind of have to look for. And I said it at the Apple, the evolution the evolution of a pitcher will always get me going. I love it. Um, and the progress that he's made over the last few seasons, it's uh, it's been more than evident. Um, you know, we talked about the slider, 181 slugging percentage, 47.9% whiff rate last season. Just nasty. So if he's going to work this offseason to – come into camp and, you know, the same way he was feeling when he's, you know, at his best during the regular season, kind of find that rhythm and do his best to stay in that rhythm. Man, it, it could, you know, it could work out to be a really, really special year for Diaz. And just like Nimmo, he's going to be a free agent after the season. So uh, he's going to be going out there and, you know, trying to, um, to maximize his earning potential, which as we would all do in that position. But yeah, you know, the Mets, um, whether it's external or internal, they really got a lot going on right now. Uh, all things considered, considering it's not, there's no actual news, but you know, you can always find a little something to, uh, to dig around and talk about, but we are going to take a very quick break because we do have one more quick topic to touch on and, uh, yeah, hang tight. Be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And welcome back. Um, we were just talking about the on-field Mets. Let's talk about the off-field Mets. Uh, one of the more notable, one of the more recognizable, one of the more adored New York Mets in franchise history, Keith Hernandez, was announced on Tuesday night that his number 17 would be uh, retired, along with four, uh, only four other Mets players and two Mets managers, and then, of course, Jackie Robinson, uh, have had their numbers retired and Keith Hernandez's number 17 is going up in that left field uh, facade. I guess, what is that? The facing? The roofing facing? Whatever you want to call it. Keith's number's going up there, too. And that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, the Fernand- Fernando Tatis Seniors and, and Mr. Coos and Luis Lopez's who, you know, guys who are <sighs> given the number 17 over the years. Um, you know, they... <sighs> They wore it, and I'm sure that, you know, maybe they had an inkling of the importance of it, but, you know, now it's going to be up top. Now it's, there's no mistaking what that number means to the organization, and it's uh, it's special. I mean, personally, I, I was too young to really appreciate Keith Hernandez as a baseball player. Uh, you know, he was like my first, I guess him and Gary Carter were my first favorite players, but, you know, they were both released, I believe I was six years old, seven years old. Um, you know, I was a kid. Uh, I, I didn't really know, and, uh, you know, the most I knew about Keith Hernandez was my dad saying, oh, yeah, watch him. He's a left-handed hitter, too, and he's one of the best swings in baseball. So I did. Um, and, you know, what we learned 
after the fact, at least my generation of, of Mets fan, was that, you know, the types of player and the types of leader that Keith Hernandez was as a, as a, as a baseball player, as a ball player, um, they don't come around very often. You know, you think about Keith Hernandez leaving St. Louis and, and coming to New York and, you know, <laughs> you're leaving the penthouse and going to the boiler room. That's pretty much what it is. I mean, Keith Hernandez, he won a co-NL MVP in 79 with Willie Stargell. Um, kind of, you know, him and that group of uh, of Cardinals, you know, rode that wave. They The Cardinals were a very middling team, 70, 80 wins a season through the late 70s. And then, you know, 1980, 1981, 82, they won a World Series. They, you know, they, they came of age. They, they were turning into a machine. They pretty much followed Cincinnati as the next, you know, powerhouse in the National League. And they were they were doing it consistently. Uh, you know, Hernandez got caught up in his stuff. Cardinals manager Whitey Herzog, who later in, in his life, in his book, referred to Hernandez as a cancer in the clubhouse. Uh, you know, everyone's going to have their opinions. <laughs> Can't do much about that. Um, you know, they decided that they were going to trade Keith Hernandez, and, and they got back, you know, I don't want to toss dirt on Neil Allen or Rick Owenby, but, you know, they got back two 25-year-old right-handers who, looking back, were toss-ins for a player like Keith Hernandez. You know, at the time, you know, Frank Cashin was building what he hoped to be a winner. He knew it was going to take time. He told Mets ownership, guys, it's going to take me, you know, five years at least to, to get this done. And he had the... Uh, the foundation in place. He had a bright future in in the farm system and Strawberry and and uh, and Gooden and, and brought in Darling, brought in Howard Johnson. Um, you know, they had the 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 future was in place. They needed a veteran like Keith Hernandez to come in and I don't want to say show these guys the ropes, but just bring that that presence. So. I have, I have my notes here from today. So what Keith Hernandez brought to New York was more than that solid bat, that elite grade glove. And just to speak of that solid bat, from 84 through 87, Hernandez hit 305, 396, 440. That batting average was the eighth best in the majors over that span. The OBP was seventh best. Weighted runs created was 17th. And 20.1 F4 over that span was 12th. Um, won 11 straight gold gloves, 11 total, all consecutive. That's most in the majors, most in major league history for a first baseman. So he brought the, the, the on-field performance, but he brought so much more than that. He brought veteran leadership. He brought championship experience. He brought credibility to a team that desperately needed it. He brought lessons that he learned from his own mistakes. And I think we heard it during his press conference on Wednesday that – I think Ronnie Darling said it. Keith wasn't the rah-rah, let's-go guy in the clubhouse, but he led by example. Go, Come in, go to work, do your job, and, uh, you know, and pat yourself on the back for a nice, uh, a hard day's work and get back at it tomorrow. That's just blue-collar stuff, man. I think I think we could all recall Keith Hernandez referring to himself as just a blue-collar guy. He's a lunch pail guy. That's what he is. Um and, and that's what the Mets needed at the time. And, of course, in 85, when they brought in Gary Carter and um, 
you know, and, and things just kind of took off from there and he kind of felt it and going into 86, Davey Johnson famously said the Mets would dominate and they did. And, you know, and not without their, their bumps in the road, I guess you could say. And, you know, they even hit a couple in the postseason that year between the Astros and the Red Sox. You know, there were times that Mets fans will tell you that <laughs> this was not a short thing. Yeah, they dominated in the regular season, but that level of experience that Hernandez and, and even though Carter didn't play in the postseason much, but that that veteran leadership, that guys calm down, just do what got you here, that type of attitude, that was you know presumably instilled by the guys who were experienced enough to breathe in those situations. And that that sort of mindset, that sort of calm mind frame, and those heightened pressurized moments, that that's it's contagious. You know, if everyone's kind of freaking out, and you're looking to your, you know, de facto leader, and he's cool as a freaking cucumber, you know, that's um, it's going to send a wave through through the group. And I think that you know. Of course, in its simplest form, that's what Keith Hernandez and, and uh, an extension, of course, Gary Carter, um, brought to a young Mets team. And, you know, by the time that things all came together, I mean, that was a powerhouse. You could talk to any Mets fan of that era. That team should have won three World Series. Forget about just one. That, that, that was a team talented enough to, to, to be a true dynasty. You know, shit happened. We all know that story by now, but... You know, Keith Hernandez was the, uh, to borrow a phrase from Reggie Jackson, he was the straw that stirred that drink. He was what brought that Mets team from, I don't even want to say from point A to point B, because they were, they were at like point D, man. They were just, you know, they were a laughing stock. Keith Hernandez was considering retiring from baseball when he got traded to the Mets. Um, I found a really, really cool article from Marty Noble. I don't know how many of you remember Marty Noble. Marty Noble used to write for Newsday. Uh, Marty Noble used to write for MLB.com before Decomo landed there. Um, Marty Noble was great. The uh, the voice of my childhood. Uh, the voice, I should say. The, <laughs> the, the internal uh, dialogue of my childhood. Just, you know, I would read Marty Noble every morning. I, same thing, actually. I would read John Heyman every day, too, but, you know, how the mighty have fallen. Sorry, John. Um, I shouldn't say that. You know what? Heyman's done a terrific job this offseason feeding news, I guess, in the past. Um, I don't know. I guess as a – I'll say it as a fan. Um, I was disappointed in the – the the, the uh, I guess the coverage itself. It got a little um, – What's the word I'm looking for? Mainstreamy? And I guess, you know, I, it's probably not even the right word, but it's been a lot more uh, streamlined this offseason, and we appreciate it, John. But anyway, back to Keith Hernandez. So Keith Hernandez, you know, coming from St. Louis, a stalwart in Cincinnati, 1979 co-MVP, 82 World Series champion, you know, cream of the crop. St. Louis, their baseball royalty to begin with, the Cardinals, when the Cardinals are playing at their best and they got the whole city behind them, forget about it. It's a, it's a, it's a juggernaut. And that's where they were at the time. They were, they were there. And out of nowhere, Keith Hernandez gets traded. And, um, as we said, you know, the, uh, he was actually considering, 
you know, hanging him up. And this is the quote that he gave Marty Noble. Uh, and I quote, how much better could things get at that point? That's what I was asking myself, talking about, you know, the the times he enjoyed in St. Louis. Um, so I knew I could play, but did I want to play in New York for a bad team? <laughs> End quote. Uh, yeah, I mean, and the Mets were a very, very bad team. They didn't win more than 67 games from 78 through 82. Uh, never had a winning percentage above 414. 83, Hernandez's first season. They got to 420. Nice. Um, and yeah, and I mean, they were just a bad team. <clears throat> so Keith Hernandez was actually considering retiring. This is, again, uh, a quote here. It says, you know me, crazy, impulsive Keith. But yeah, I thought about it. I didn't want to be here. I talked to my brother about it. I called my agent. He said, not a chance. Uh, you know, it, it's trying to find a silver lining in a situation like that. Um, I couldn't personally wrap my head around it. Like I said, it's like going from the from the castle to the moat. It's like, oh yeah, you're 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 living in the castle. No, no, no. You're in a tent. You're in a tent on the outskirts of the property. Um, you know, for a ball player to, and especially at that time when, you know, you didn't see. Of course, guys change teams, but you know, you didn't. It, it was a shell shock. It had to be. And you're going from the top of the world to you're starting all over again, literally from the the bottom of the trough, and you're just building your way back up and, um. You know, over the when he came here, I guess Hernandez has said many times in the past, he was just waiting for the season to end. He could demand his trade and, and move on with his career. But uh, over the next, you know, few months, um, he linked up with everyone's favorite Met, Rusty Staub. Linked up with New York City, of course, and everything that the that the city has to offer a uh, a young ball player in his in his a star ball player in his prime, and. Um, Accepted the Mets 8.4 million over the next five years, and you know we all know how that story ended. But you know now the Mets are, um, I guess they've heard since Steve Cohen took over. I guess one of the first things he did was go on social media and say, "What do you, what does everybody want to see? What does everybody want from the franchise?" And you know this is a long suffering fan base, man, and and you know the 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 suggestions that came out of the woods were. You know, some of them were crazy, but, you know, one of them was, oh, retire Carter's number, retire Hernandez's number, retire Wright's number. And you kind of just feel all these things coming now. And it's, I think Keith Hernandez said it during the, um, during his presser on Wednesday. It's like dominoes are falling now. You have Tom Seaver's statue going up this year. Um, now it's the 60th anniversary of the franchise. You have Hernandez's number getting retired. It's just, they're, they're taking, obvious steps at at making this more of a a proud franchise. I know we're a proud fan base, but the franchise itself has been what's the the phrase? It's been a bit sad sack. Been a sad sack franchise for a very long time. You know, success has been fleeting to say the least. And and you know, I don't want to say that the fans needed a boost of morale, but accentuating the history that we did fall in love with is important. It's it's important for us to honor what brought the organization to this point. It doesn't matter if there were World Series championships or not, or you know there were a couple, but you know, not nearly as much as as many as as we all wanted. But 
celebrating the the players and the people who got this organization to this point where hopefully they're now turning a corner and they're going to be a powerhouse for the foreseeable future. You know, that's, um, that's part of, it's all part of the magic. Um, you know, listening to the fans for so long, just, they took notice of it. They took notice of the, the adoring nature and yeah, Keith Hernandez has done some, <laughs> he's made some missteps to, to, to say the least. I think, uh, you know, plugging the anti-vax book on Twitter this past year was, you know, that was a, a, a whomper <laughs> if you've ever seen, if we've ever seen one before, but you know, it's <sighs> 60 something year old man, guys. I mean, you know, everyone's got their views. Um, you don't have to agree with everybody's opinions, but you know, he's not being celebrated for that. He's been celebrated for being a, a, a pillar of this organization. Um, and it goes off the field as well. I mean, he told the story on Wednesday about, you know, he had no plans on getting into the broadcast booth. Zero. Um, his agent said, oh, you know, you, you have interest there. You should really look into it. And it, it took some prodding, but eventually Keith gave him the green light to go explore some options. And, you know, before he knew it, he's on MSG and then, uh, what was it? FSNY. And, and now since 2006, I mean, they're creeping up on, on, uh, Ralph Kiner, Lindsey Nelson and, um, and Bob Murphy's 17 years in the booth, him, Gary and Ronnie. I mean, the, uh, the legend of Keith Hernandez is, is <laughs> it, it's just grown and grown and grown. It's not going to stop growing. I mean, this is a guy that's, I, I think it's safe to say he loves the Mets as, love, as much as the Mets and, and their fans love him. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And what the, uh, what the organization has decided to do for him is um, just wonderful. Also, what we learned on Wednesday, the Mets are going to be having an old-timers day this season, or at least they're going to try to, but <laughs> Keith let the cat out of the bag during his presser. Uh, I guess uh, Steve Cohen, when he, he called Keith on, I guess it was yesterday or Monday possibly, to, uh, to let him know that the, the Hall of Fame committee had uh, voted to retire his number. And Keith said that Cohen like let him on for a little bit. He kept him on the phone for like ten minutes talking about the offseason, this and that. It's like, oh yeah, by the way. And, and you know, that's I think that's pretty funny. But you know, um at least when I was watching it, I couldn't picture Jeff Wilpon doing something like that. I couldn't picture, you know, Fred Wilpon doing something like that. It's you know, probably send a homing pigeon, <laughs> drop a note, or you know, leave a, a tape, play it, and then at the end of the recording it says, well, this message, this tape will self-destruct in 30 seconds. You know, something crazy like that. But, you know, um, it's a new time. And I love the direction that the franchise and the organization is going. And I think that, you know, retiring 17 is the first of, of many, many just terrific um, instances that this uh, new regime is going to set into action. And it's, it's a good thing. I think I've rambled on long enough. I was really only planning on staying on for, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes. And I think we're about to push 40. So let me go ahead and wrap it up. Um, we still have our Hall of Fame episode coming up. I have been absolutely dragging my feet on that. But we should have that coming next week. And, uh, yeah, otherwise, hopefully we get some good news on this lockout meeting on Thursday. All right, guys. We will see you next time. You know the sign-off by now. It's let's fucking go Mets. And we'll see you next time. Peace.